Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Okay, so let's start tonight with a story about one of my favorite subjects, citizen science. And so working with amateur space photographers, physicists have identified a new kind of oral phenomena or auroral phenomena. We've already talked about another phenomena first discovered in 2017 and affectionately called Steve, which turned out to not be an aurora, but a similar kind of atmospheric glow. Now we can talk about the dunes, a pattern of luminous, rippling waves, which had not previously been identified within the standard category of aurora. So while writing a guidebook on the aurora borealis, Minna Palmroth, a computational space physicist from the University of Helsinki, noticed the new type of aurora. After the book was published, members of the Finnish hobbyist community began to document and share information about the phenomena with Palmroth and her colleagues in order for them to learn more about it. One of the most memorable moments of our research collaboration was when the phenomenon appeared at that specific time and we were able to examine it in real time, said astronomy hobbyist Maddie Helen. It was like piecing together a puzzle or conducting detective work. Every day, we found new images and came up with new ideas. And so after extended study, the work has now been published in the journal AGU Advances. And so it turns out that the dunes are apparent, apparently emerge at an altitude of around 62 miles in the upper reaches of the mesosphere. And they are visible from different locations in both Finland and Sweden. The dunes are suspected to be related to what's called a mesospheric bore, which manifests when waves of oxygen atoms in the atmosphere are excited by interactions with solar wind, thus producing the glowing, undulating dune structures. We associate the dunes to the oscillations of the oxygen density, giving a variability to the oral emissions auroral emissions from the variability of the excitation targets within the atmosphere. The authors write in their paper. While the evidence is not sufficient for us to conclude beyond a doubt that the dunes are not a manifestation of variations in the auroral precipitation, we argue that they are more suggestive of them being a result of atmospheric waves. So we have a new entry, most likely, into the growing family of glowing sky phenomena. (laughs) And importantly, it emphasizes the importance of citizen scientists. Our paper adds to the growing body that illustrates the value of citizen scientist images in carrying out quantitative analysis of optical phenomena, especially at small scale at sub-auroral latitudes, the researchers said. Further, the Dune project presents means to create general interest towards physics, emphasizing that citizens can take part in scientific work by helping to uncover new phenomena. 
And so as always, I will remind you that there are a variety of projects that you can work on uh, from the comfort of your own home, as well as more adventurous projects like going out there and actually looking at the skies. And so there are a whole bunch of websites, um, Zooniverse, uh, citizenscience.gov, and they can help you find something that you will enjoy doing. And I've found it really rewarding over the years to work on some of them. So I would definitely, definitely recommend it. Okay, let's move on now to a quite exciting breakthrough in the realm of snake venom. (laughs) And so uh, for the first time, researchers have been able to produce snake venom toxins in the lab which is important not only for snake bite victims, but also for research into medical uses for the venom. It could also mean the beginning of the end for the need to keep and milk live snakes in order to gain the venom, which is both a slow and dangerous prospect, as well as potentially harmful to the snakes. And so right now, the only way to get... um, snake venom in order to actually make anti-venom. You actually have to have venom in order to make anti-venom. And so they actually have to have, there are places that basically just farm snakes and they don't farm the snakes for, uh, you know, food or anything like that. They farm them absolutely for their venom. And so um, it's obviously a very dangerous prospect. Uh, And so there are always occasional stories um, or there are occasional stories of people who are experts who have dealt with snakes forever and they still manage to uh, sometimes get bit and, you know, lose fingers, lose arms, die. It's, It's not exactly the easiest job in the world. And so if we could produce snake venom in a lab rather than having to have people do that, that would be a huge, huge, just like game-changing thing. And so hopefully that is, this is going to be something that leads down the line to getting rid of the need to actually milk snakes. Now, the venom was produced by adapting a process for growing simplified human organs using organoids. The researchers were able to create organoids that produce venom from the Cape coral snake, as well as seven other snake species. More than 100,000 people die from snake bites every year, mostly in developing countries, says molecular biologist Hans Clevers from Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Yet the methods for manufacturing antivenom haven't changed since the 19th century. He adds, every snake has dozens of different components in their venom. They are These are extremely potent molecules that are designed to stop prey from running away. They affect systems as varied as the brain, neuromuscular junctions, blood coagulation, and more. Many of them have potential bioprospecting applications for new drugs. And that's the other big thing. Now, Clever's lab generally works on human organoids, but some of his students wanted to try out working on reptile organoids. And so they tweaked the work, including lowering lowering the temperature to match uh, reptile um, metabolism, 
and they were able to create the tiny snake venom glands. They used tissue from snake embryos and added it to a gel mixed with growth factors. And it turned out that they could do that without even the need for stem cells. This is a field that does not exist, so they thought it was interesting to study the most iconic reptilian organ, the snake venom gland, he said. Once we grew the venom glands as organoids, we realized they make a lot of venom. Now, the team identified at least four distinct types of cells within the venom glands, and they were able to test that the venom peptides produced were biologically active and that they closely resembled those of actual living snakes. And so this is definitely something that is approaching exactly what you would get from actually milking snakes. We know from other secretory systems, such as the pancreas and intestine, that specialized cell types make subsets of hormones, says developmental biologist Jope Bumer, also from Utrecht. Now we saw for the first time that this is also the case for the toxins produced by snake venom gland cells. Now, the research was published in the journal Cell, and again, this is a real breakthrough. Um, it can potentially help with faster development of drugs and just revolutionize the ability of people to make antivenom. Um, antivenom continues to be a real problem. Um, you know, there are places out there that have these deadly snakes, and it's really hard to produce any venom when you're just getting small amounts of venom from individual snakes because, um, you know, snakes don't produce a ton of antivenom or a ton of venom. And then once they've produced that venom, if you milk them, they then have to be allowed to, you know, rest in order for the body to build up a new um, dose of venom. And so, it's constantly a problem and people can need tons and tons of antivenom depending on the kind of snake, depending on where they've been bitten, uh, how long it took for them to get to a place that has antivenom. Um, it's really, really hard um, to downplay the importance of such research. Um, and I think it's really interesting because basically it started out just as kind of a, um, let's see if we can do this. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, obviously, as I always like to caution, this is, you know, still in a lab. Uh, these are still just organ organelles in a, um, or organoids in a uh, Petri dish, basically. And so this isn't going to turn into a way to make antivenom uh, tomorrow. But I think that if some other people pick it up and uh, or even if the students um, and um, this lab continues to work on it, it could potentially be a game changer in terms of how we um, are able to produce antivenoms and again, other drugs because venoms are actually considered a really, really important uh, source point for novel drugs. And so there's so many venoms out there that have led to uh, drugs for pain relief 
and for a host of other things. And, um, you know, they can help with, if you refine them properly, what is usually the thing that kills you can be turned into something that actually can help you. And so um, it's really important to be able to study those venoms and to be able to just produce them on demand in the lab would be absolutely amazing. So again, this is super important um, and super awesome. Okay, now let's continue with talking about snakes for a minute. Um, And so it turns out that uh, we talked about it last week. Uh, This is sort of a callback to our discussion or ongoing uh, uh, detailing of the uh, new coronavirus, the Wuhan coronavirus. And so last week I was talking about some people had suggested that snakes were the uh, vector by which the virus reached humans. And I said that there was some um, pushback on that. And um, so I wanted to talk about that for a minute. And so there has been skepticism. And this is because humans are rarely infected by viruses that originate from reptiles which makes sense. We're just not exactly the same. We don't have the same kinds of metabolism. You know, they had to lower the temperature to create those organelles um, or organoids. I keep wanting to say organelles, which is a different thing. Um, That is organelles are the things like mitochondria in your cells. They're not what they were making there. Anyways, (laughs) so... um, we just don't, we're just not that compatible. Uh, most zoonotic viruses, which are viruses that we end up getting from animals, come either from mammals or birds, um, which, you know, birds are also not like us. Uh, they are obviously dinosaurs. Uh, so I guess it's not really that. It's just that for some reason, the way that reptiles, um, the way that their viruses work just don't work with our bodies. But anyways, Edward Holmes, a virologist at the University of Sydney, noted that, I can't categorically say it's never happened, but the animal reservoirs for human viruses are mainly mammals and maybe birds. And so a paper in the Journal of Medical Virology had suggested that codons, uh, which are, um, they are three, uh, Codons are three bits of DNA. Uh, the word is escaping me. Um, three nucleotides of DNA, and they are basically sort of the building blocks of um, genes, usually. And so they found codons in the virus that most closely matched those of snakes, uh, possibly the many banded crate or the Chinese cobra. And they suspected that it had combined with a bat virus, which everyone is probably sure that that part's true because um, it's, it's pretty safe to assume that. But the fact that coronaviruses are mainly found in mammals makes this, again, unlikely. And so uh, they suggest that animals from the initial outbreak really need to be tested for either the virus or antibodies in order to establish the actual vectors. And so the reason why we're so sure about the whole bat virus thing is that both SARS and MERS originated in bats, 
uh, with SARS then jumping to civets before uh, jumping to humans. And then MERS actually used camels as an intermediary. And in fact, people are still being infected by MERS occasionally uh, because it is in camels and um, you know, MERS stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And so there's a lot of camels in the Middle East. And so people do occasionally still um, are still infected by MERS. Uh, SARS seems to have been um, eliminated as far as we can tell for the moment. Coronaviruses are definitely in bats. And there's very probably a mammal intermediary host for the new virus. But we haven't discovered that yet, says David Robertson, a virologist at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. People shouldn't now start killing snakes. That would be an awful thing. And yes, it would be. Um, and so it is very important that we find the true origin of the outbreak so that we can not only help people avoid further infection from that original vector, um, but it would probably also help us with developing either a vaccine or a treatment. And so let's let's talk about the virus for a moment. Uh, the World Health Organization on Thursday did declare the outbreak a, uh, quote, public health emergency of international concern. And that's kind of the, the very uh, <laughs> um, carefully worded version of uh, basically this is a now an international uh, health crisis. Um, and so, but... Again, even though it is of international concern, here in the U.S., we're pretty safe. Um, but, you know, as of Friday afternoon, uh, overall, China had reported around 9,658 cases with 213 deaths. And there were 118 additional cases in at least 20 other countries outside of mainland China. And of course, uh, you may have heard that the first case of person-to-person -person transmission in the U.S. Um, was noted this um, week from Chicago. Um, the husband of the patient who had recently traveled to um, Wuhan did come down with the virus. However, there are also 187 people who have now been confirmed as having recovered. And the mortality rate currently hovers just above 2%. And so to put this into perspective, influenza's mortality rate is around 13% in the United States. And so 2% is, um, it's not zero, obviously, but it is very low. Um, and so hopefully the virus will continue to have a very low mortality rate and, um, one of the big things about, of course, mortality versus um, virility is that they're kind of um, have an inverse curve to them. So um, the more um, virulent something is, um, the more um, easily spread, it means that you get more people. And so that's what a a virus ultimately wants is it wants to be widespread. And so if it's lethal very quickly, um, or if it's lethal to a lot of the people who get it, that tends to burn out the virus very quickly, because if everybody who's getting it dies, they can't then pass it on to other people. And so, um, 
as viruses develop, they tend to become less lethal and uh, in order to be able to spread better, which, you know, isn't a great thing, but it's better than uh, the alternative. <laughs> and so again, this is already at a very low mortality rate. And so I think it should be continue to be around that um, unless something dramatically changes. And also um, there's real, there's really no cause for alarm in the United States. Um, though, of course, many people have friends and relatives in China uh, that they might be thinking or worrying about right now. And hopefully, uh, again, that the mortality rate will continue to be very low. The vast majority of people will recover with little lasting effect. And so hopefully that is what's going to happen, um, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, something like this is definitely going to continue. Um, some of the models have it peaking in April and then um, going downhill from there. Um, and of course, again, that's not that's just a model. And so we can't say for certain that it's going to have that exact trajectory. Um, and so right now we are just kind of in a wait and see pattern with it. All right, let's move on and talk about other things though. And so let's talk about policing fishing boats using birds, which I think is a brilliant idea. Now, as you are probably well aware, overfishing is a huge problem, which we don't have great solutions for. And so it's made worse by the fact that many ships are frankly hard to find when they're out in the middle of the ocean. Researchers have found that albatrosses are potentially an ideal candidate for carrying miniature detectors that would pick up signals from fishing boats in remote parts of the ocean. It should be very effective since albatrosses are naturally attracted to fishing boats uh, occasionally in order to obviously steal fish from the catch, and they fly huge distances across the Indian Ocean and South Pacific, where much of this fishing takes place. Um, and I was just at the uh, Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto recently, and they had an albatross, um, and it had its arms. The, it was obviously uh, taxidermied. And uh, the wingspan, it had, it, the wings were um, extended. And it was just amazing how large these birds are. Um, you know, it had a wingspan that was probably uh, wider than I am tall. <laughs> and so they were really beautiful um, animals. And they're just crazy. They can fly forever. So fishing vessels can have a variety of systems for identifying themselves, including a vessel monitoring system that can, can declare their presence and allow them to be identified remotely, as well as an automated identification system that helps them avoid collisions or an automatic identification system. They also have radar for ships not using either system. However, the problem is, is that all of these can be turned off. And even when they're on, there's no good system for tracking them with almost none of the data available in real time and even delayed data being difficult to gather. And so basically, unless you're there and you have a boat that can read these, the only other people who are getting these signals are other boats that are out there also fishing. There are no good ways for you for any kind of uh, monitoring system um, or uh, policing system. 
And so reporting in the journal PNAS, the researchers, including first author Henry Weimerskirch at the University of La Rochelle in France, and Samantha C. Patrick of the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Liverpool in England, decided to test their theory in the field. They created a small 65-gram package with a GPS receiver, an antenna for radar signals, and an antenna for satellite communications for environmental monitoring. They combined these with a lithium battery and a small solar panel, which was which gave them a device that was able to scan for radar every five minutes and send out real-time alerts whenever any vessel was present. The researchers used albatrosses from nesting grounds in the South Pacific, uh, including the islands of Crozette, Kerguelen, and Amsterdam. <laughs> and so uh, they used nesting birds because males and females take turns providing time on the nest and making extensive feeding trips. This meant that they would travel afar and then come back to the same spot. By the end of the experiment, 169 birds had flown throughout the Pacific with a tracker covering areas between the east coast of Africa all the way to New Zealand. The system registered 600,000 GPS locations and had over 5,000 radar detections. The team put together this raw data with data obtained from boat tracking systems to determine that the birds had detected 353 different boats. Nearly 30% of those signals did not have corresponding automatic identification system data, meaning that the system had been turned off when the bird flew overhead. The number was lower in a French exclusive economic zone, with most returns being French fishing vessels. However, they found that at the edge of this zone, both Chinese and Spanish vessels would switch their broadcast systems on and off. In international waters, the number of boats operating without a broadcast was even greater. Now, some of these vessels are almost certainly not fishing boats and thus wouldn't need the identification broadcast, but they found that non-broadcasting boats occurred most frequently in areas that are fished for tuna, areas where clearly illegal fishing would be lucrative. The data also confirmed that albatrosses will approach fishing vessels uh, that they come across, although the percentage was rather small, with only around 6% overall displaying this behavior. It was much more common in mature birds and varied among species. Now, one of the big takeaways from the authors is that this might actually be a way to help the albatrosses themselves, since their numbers have been reduced in part due to trying to eat bait from long line fishing. And it might just be that the birds themselves could help us know who is out there fishing this way and whether or not they're doing so legally. And so we could hopefully reduce the amount of illegal longline fishing and just illegal fishing in general, helping to uh, keep fishing stocks better um, protected and also to help the albatrosses. So win, win. And hopefully this will be something that uh, might actually take off, <laughs> pun completely intended. Okay, so we are going to take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos, and then we're going to come back and talk about a really remarkable and unique fossil that has been found 
and uh, described. And I definitely think you should stay tuned because it's pretty amazing. All right, hang on for just a few moments while we do some show promos and such. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine, representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, Lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. 
never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Do you love Latin music? Then check out Ritmo Latino. Tune in to WXOJ on Sunday evenings from 6 to 7 p.m. I'm your host, Kat, and I'll be playing a mix of styles from around the world, old school to new. Listen for local talent and upcoming events in the Latino community. So finish out your weekend with Latin style. Ritmo Latino, Sundays, 6 to 7 p.m. here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, we are back. And I just want to give a shout out to uh, Betty White, who just turned 98 the other day um, and who is just amazing and is totally someone that I have loved forever. And so, yeah, um, definitely, definitely just an amazing person. Um, and hopefully she will continue to be an amazing person for many years to come. Um, probably not that many, but, <laughs> uh, she's outlived three husbands apparently. So, <laughs> all right. Um, so let's move on now and talk about that amazing, uh, fossil. And so this is actually showing how an ancient flying animal also had a taste for sea life, just like those albatrosses do. And so an extremely rare fossil is shedding light on the habit and diet of a pterosaur. Now, we've known for some time that pterosaurs ate fish because scales and bones have been found in the fossil remains of their stomachs. However, a stunning and rare new squid fossil is showing that they also enjoyed these soft-bodied animals as food. The 150-million-year-old fossil of a squid has a very unique feature. Embedded in its mantle is the tooth from a pterosaur. The fossil was found in 2012, and it comes from the Conservat Lagerstätten, or Conservation Deposit, of Sonhofen, uh, the Sonhofen Limestone, uh, which is in Bavaria, Germany. And so many Jurassic period fossils of pterosaurs, small dinosaurs, and most famously, the original Archaeopteryx fossils were discovered in the Solhofen limestone. And so um, Konservat Lagerstätten is the uh, German word for a deposit with exceptional preservation of either animals or traces of animals. 
And so the most famous are the Solhofen, as well as the Burgess Shale of British Columbia. And um, you could also technically um, add in the uh, La Brea Tar Pits in California. And so basically it's places where there's just a lot of really well-preserved animals. And so at the time that the animal died, the area would have been a tropical climate with low-lying islands in a shallow tropical sea. Now, the tooth is the correct shape and size to have belonged to the pterosaur Ramphorhynchus, according to the paper published in Scientific Reports. They suggest the tooth was left in an attempt to eat the squid, which is just under a foot in length and belongs to the extinct Plesiotuthis genus. And so the researchers actually suggest it is a specimen of Plesiotuthis subovata, which is actually one of the rarer colloids found in the formation, which makes the fossil even more unique. Now, the pterosaur most likely swooped down on the squid, but was thwarted, uh, either because the squid was too large or it was too far under the water for the animal to manage to come away with a meal. The plesiotuthis squid wrestled it off and escaped, breaking at least one tooth off the pterosaur, which became lodged in the squid's mantle, says Jordan Bestwick, a paleontologist at the Universi University of Leicester in England. This fossil is important in helping us understand the dietary range of Rimforheinchus. These are very hard words to say, people. <laughs> and tell us about its hunting behavior. It's actually the first time such a predator-prey interaction has been found where the pterosaur is the predator rather than the prey. So, in fact, a few examples of fish have been found uh, with pterosaurs in their stomachs. Um, and uh, so... Um, the fossil is also remarkable for the level of preservation with the soft body of the squid being completely preserved due to having sunk into oxygen depleted water after it died. Um, and so actually I should say they wouldn't have been in their stomach, but they would have been in a more active position because um, this is like the actual um, predator prey interaction. And so um if you have ever been in a natural history museum, you've probably seen some of the huge fish that were in the ocean at that time. Um, so there were definitely big fish that could have um, kind of gotten a pterosaur if it was like maybe trying to get a squid and it would get the pterosaur instead. Um, and so some of that, some a couple of those have actually been preserved where there is interaction in a way that shows that the fish was trying to eat the pterosaur at the time that the uh, they both perished. And so uh, getting back to the preservation of the fossil, the low oxygen levels and high saline uh, content of the water would have allowed the soft tissue to be replaced by a process called phosphatization. And so uh, the researchers can't be sure if the wound from the tooth ultimately killed it or if it lived for some time with the tooth embedded. I'm hoping, obviously, for the latter, uh, with the tooth being a sort of badge of honor of uh, having survived this uh, possible predation. But it's, and so um, they actually, 
suggested in the paper that they didn't think it would have hit any of the internal organs. And so it's quite possible that that happened, that it continued to live with that tooth just kind of hanging out in its mantle. Okay, uh, so let us move on now. And uh, let's move forward in time a little bit to discuss a new arrival in the geological record. The International Union of of Geological Sciences has just ratified a new geological time interval, which spans the era between 770,000 and 126,000 years ago, and is named after a layer of sediment found on a riverbank cliff in Chiba Prefecture in Japan. The new age is called the Chibianian, and it is important because it contains a record of Earth's last magnetic reversal. That pole reversal, known as the Brunhes Matayuma reversal, is still a hotly debated subject. A 2014 paper suggested, based on sediment in Italy, that the flip took place in just decades. A 2009 paper argues from lava flows in Hawaii that it actually took 22,000 years. And so it's hoped that this new sediment might actually help end that debate. And it might give us clues as to what is happening today with our magnetic poles, which have been wandering uh, in ways that scientists are kind of puzzled by. Um, And so if we can look back at this earlier one, maybe that will give us a clue about what's happening right now. And speaking of uh, sort of mysteries and sort of things from the past, uh, new evidence suggests that a 110-year-old theory about iridescence might just actually have been correct. And so artist and naturalist Abbott Henderson Thayer published a book of the, on the coloration of animals in 1909. He would actually become, come to be called the father of camouflage, and was particularly interested in iridescence. And so iridescence is the bright metallic jewel tones that shift hue depending on the angle one views them at. The trait has often been assigned to sexual selection. However, Thayer believed that it was also used for camouflage in some species. Now, Thayer's idea on this particular point was not well respected. Uh, He was especially mocked, apparently, by uh, Theodore Roosevelt. (laughs) So apparently Teddy Roosevelt was like, meh, I don't think that's true. (laughs) And uh, to, you know, Teddy's point, there had been little empirical evidence to suggest that the theory really did hold water. However, new research from the University of Bristol reports on the first evidence of this in The Jeweled Beetle. Publishing in Current Biology, Karen Kirjnesmo, an evolutionary biologist of, of sorry, an evolutionary and behavioral ecologist at the University of Bristol, and her colleagues found that iridescence does indeed have camouflage properties. Iridescence is interesting because it's not something that comes from pigment coloration. It actually comes from a structural lattice-like configuration to the surface of the wing or feather or other material. And so the structure causes light to interfere with itself, thus only propagating in certain directions and frequencies. Physicists refer to these structures as photonic crystals. 
earlier work, first by Thomas Pike at the University of Exeter in 2015, uh, suggested that the iridescence interfered with a bird's ability to capture uh, sort of simulated virtual prey. In 2018, Cogermo and colleagues found that it confused bumblebees. That paper concluded that, quote, the iridescence produces virtual signals that can confuse potential predators, and this might explain the high frequency of iridescent in many animal taxa. But questions still remained, including whether it actually conferred a survival advantage through camouflage or by signaling to predators that the prey is dangerous or unappetizing in some way. This is a, ph- a phenomena known as aposematism. And so... Um, the new study went on went out into the field, and so uh, the Lay Woods National Nature Reserve in North Somerset, and they placed real jewel beetles, beetle wing cases on leaves and other plants, along with mealworms, as well as duller colored wings, also with mealworms, to track how often they were spotted by birds. Although an iridescent insect might be easy to spot in a well-lit museum case, these spectacular colors may not shine as brightly in the dappled light of a natural environment, and so an iridescent beetle on a shiny leaf could be much more difficult to detect, she said. If iridescence is to work as a form of protective coloration, it needs to work against birds because birds are likely to be the most important predators of many iridescent insects. And the other thing that they tested was humans. (laughs) And so they actually asked humans to also try and go out there. And uh, that was actually pretty interesting. (laughs) I think that the biggest surprise to us was that when we carried out the same experiment with humans, even they really struggled to spot the iridescent beetles, uh, said Kajarismo. Both birds and humans really do have difficulty spotting iridescent objects in a natural, complex forest environment. And in fact, there was a photo provided by the researchers which features a wing uh, in a uh, on a plant, and it's a shiny plant. Um, the leaf was placed against, or the wing was placed against a glossy leaf that was also damp. Um, and this added a ton of visual noise. And so it made it really hard to pick out. It really, I did have a hard time finding it. You know, once you see it, you can't unsee it in that sort of way that your brain works. But for me, it was really hard initially. And I finally was like, oh, there it is. And so, yeah, it was definitely, the camouflage was definitely working there. And so, um, they conclude they concluded that the beetle's iridescence confused predators by serving quote as a form of dynamic disruptive camouflage producing inconsistent shape cues and interfering with feature binding um and so basically it it kind of uh sort of sh- doesn't look like it is, um, and that was one of the things, it like messes with the depth perception of how you see it and things like that. And it was just really fascinating. And interesting, they also found that black wings had similar properties of camouflage, though iridescence uh, fared better on glossy surfaces, which makes sense. And so this suggests an adaptive explanation for why so many insects in nature are black as well. 
And so they also compared the wings that were iridescent to those with static rainbow colors and found that it really was the changeability of the color that was important for the camouflage. And so all in all, it's a really great experiment that lends real weight to Thayer's 100-year-old suggestion and uh, puts him back on top as the uh, king of camouflage. (laughs) So yeah, very cool. Okay, let us circle back to squids for a moment. Uh, And of course, they are masters of camouflage. And I want to talk about a new study that suggests that modern squids have brains almost as complex as dogs. Now, I know some very smart dogs, uh, so this is pretty exciting. Uh, and so we've known some for some time that cephalopods are obviously quite intelligent, and they have complex nervous systems, but a new magnetic resonance imaging study of squid brains is showing just how much cognitive connectivity there is in their brains. The researchers used high-resolution MRI and staining techniques to discover previously unknown neural pathways in squids that are very impressive. The modern cephalopods, a group including octopus, cuttlefish, and squid, have famously complex brains, approaching that of a dog and surpassing mice and rats, at least in neuronal number, said neurobiologist Wen Sung Chung of the University of Queensland, Queensland, Queensland Brain Institute in Australia. For example, some cephalopods have more than 500 million neurons compared to 200 million for a rat and 20,000 for a normal mollusk. Of course, neural complexity doesn't mean intelligence as we know it per se, But we know that dogs have dense cerebral cortices, so it's interesting to see how the cephalopod brains compare. The researchers created a connectome, which is a map of the brain, of big fin reef squid, Sepiotuthis lessoniana, using two types of MRI, contrast-enhanced magnetic resonance imagery, and high-angular resolution diffusion magnetic resonance imagery. And so using preserved samples and either silver dye or multicolored fluorescent neural traces, the researchers were able to map the neural pathways. They confirmed over 99% of the 282 major pathways previously discovered. They also found 145 new previously undiscovered major neural pathways. More than 60% of these new pathways are linked to the vision and motor system, which makes sense given their amazing ability to camouflage and communicate. We can see that a lot of neural circuits are dedicated to camouflage and visual communication, said Chung, giving the squid a unique ability to evade predators, hunt, and conspecific communicate with dynamic color changes. Of course, the thing here is that squid, it's really weird how they see, and we're still not quite sure, because we definitely know that they're colorblind. In fact, uh, Chung and his colleagues were part of the people who discovered that they are definitely colorblind, which of course makes no sense. We know they must have somehow, we, we know that they must be able to perceive color in some way, because otherwise they would have no way 
to either blend so seamlessly in with their surroundings and all those videos you've seen over the years, or to be able to communicate using flashing colors, both of which we've seen them do numerous times over and over. And so it's just crazy. The similarity with the better studied vertebrae nervous system allows us to make new predictions about the cephalopod nervous system at the behavioral level, Chung said. For example, this study proposes several new networks of neurons in charge of visually guided behaviors such as locomotion and countershading camouflage. When squid display different colors on the top and bottom of their bodies to blend into the background, whether they are being viewed from above or below. And so the research is part of a long-term project to understand cephalopod brains and their intelligence from the unique perspective of the animals so that we don't try to assign too much of our own way of thinking to these animals, which clearly have very different ways of seeing the world in ways that we don't even understand yet. Uh, Or as the paper puts it uh, very nicely, before anthropomorphic speculations lead to misconceptions around these unique and wonderful creatures, which I think is a great way to uh, end that paper. And so, yeah, squid and um, an octopus and cuttlefish, they're all amazing. And they all do all of this crazy stuff. Um, and, you know, it's so interesting to think about the fact that they're colorblind because so much of what you think about when you think about these animals is their ability to camouflage and their ability to camouflage using color. (laughs) And um, yeah, it's just really, really interesting to me. I've always found it fascinating. Um, As soon as I learned that, I was like, that what? (laughs) Um, And so it's very, very interesting. And um, obviously, uh, cephalopods have a special place in my heart. And so I love learning even more about them. And they definitely obviously have advanced uh, brains. And we've seen that in so many animals these days, um, as animal cognition has really blossomed over the last couple decades. And so we know that birds are intelligent now. We know that cephalopods are intelligent. We know that a host of other animals are much more intelligent than we ever thought they were. And so I'm very excited for that to continue to blossom and for us to continue to learn more. All right. But for tonight, that is all the time we have. So um, until next week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.